Thank you, Alex and Lorinda, for that beautiful song this morning. I believe that we either do know or can know everything we need to get home to heaven. The things that we don't know and can't know, we don't need to know. Sometimes that's hard because we want to know. We want to have it all figured out. We want all the details. But the just shall live by faith. you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah. I was in prayer concerning this, these next few weeks, thinking that perhaps we would be preaching a series on Thanksgiving, and, um, and that's kind of, that's just kind of the way I was thinking and praying, and, and the direction that that I wanted to go, and I felt like the Lord led me to a completely different thought and a little bit different series, and uh, I'm hoping that the Lord will help us, trusting He will. But I felt like the Lord wanted us to t- spend these next few weeks in preparation for revival. And I, I usually preach one sermon before a revival to help us to get in that mindset. It's kind of been the way the Lord has led me throughout my ministry, and, and almost always the sermon before revival is, is one of those kind of messages. But I felt like the Lord would have us spend several weeks in preparation for revival. And the Lord led me to Jonah where there are four instances of revival. I never thought of Jonah as a book about revival, necessarily, but each chapter contains a revival. We focus often on the whale. Some call it the great fish. Others translate it the sea monster which makes me wonder if the Lord prepared a special animal just for Jonah. I'm not sure. Translating that word is difficult. But we focus on that. We we focus on a disobedient prophet. When we think of the book of Jonah, we sometimes maybe think of, of course, wicked Nineveh, a prophet that's got issues. Maybe our kids think of Veggie Tales, <laughs> and maybe our parents, some of the young parents do too. But over four times, four times, each chapter contains a revival. Now, two of those are personal revivals. Two of them are group revivals. And I'm not sure which kind of revival the Lord wants to give us. Maybe both. Maybe both. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read just the first chapter here. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose and up to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, And he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. And the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the waves that were in the ship, in the sea, and to lighten of it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship 
And he lay, and he was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us, and we perish not. And they said, Every one to his fellow, Come, and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause is evil is upon us. What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought, and this and was tempestuous. <laughs> That's always a fun word to say. And he said unto them, Take me up, and cast me forth into the sea, so call, shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land, but they could not. The sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore, they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceeding and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Father, help us as we come to this part of the service. We thank you for how you've blessed us in the songs, special song. Even in the prayer time, we sensed your presence. But may you help us during this time. May we be a people that, are, that will be quick to hear your voice. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. It amazes me that in our day that there are religious scholars, people who claim to be Christians, who doubt the story of Jonah. They doubt that a man could live for three days inside the belly of a great fish. And, and I suppose that if I had the imagination of some people, I guess maybe I could understand that. Seems like our imaginations, we've surrendered that to television and allowed them to do, have, do all of our imagining for us. But I, I suppose that the God who created the heavens and the earth and created all the animals and, and has the ability to speak and light comes and, and he has the ability to speak and something comes from nothing, I suppose if he has that kind of power, he has the ability to keep someone alive in the belly of a, a great fish. I just don't really have a whole lot of trouble with believing this story. I understand there are some Christians who really struggle with it, but I suppose if Jesus can raise from the dead, he can keep a person alive. <laughs> I, I, just, I just really don't struggle with that. And, and I guess one of the things that confirms for me that, that this story is, is true, that, 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 there's, that we don't have any reason to doubt it, is that Jesus himself said the story was true. In fact, he's the only minor prophet that Jesus refers to. Doesn't refer to Daniel. Doesn't refer to even Zechariah or some of these that prophesied his coming. He refers to Jonah. And he said that the sign of Jonah, it, though Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. There's, just, there's this, this understanding that Jesus believed this story. And if Jesus, who was there, by the way, believes the story, 
I just don't have a whole lot of trouble believing it myself. I guess it's a pretty fantastic story. But you know, I, I think that I, I really don't trip over this prophet and a whale. But there's another part that I guess I do kind of trip over. As a kid, I loved this story. I, I, just, I just loved the story of Jonah. But I, I've found I, as I've gotten older, as, as I've pastored, and, I've, and, and, and as I've understood the, the entirety of the scriptures better, I don't know, understand all the entirety of the scriptures, but as I understand them better, Jonah kind of frustrates me. Not Jonah himself, but the book. And here's why. According to uh, Rabbi Strasfield, who's the, the, the Jewish rabbi in, uh, in Manhattan, this is what he says. Jonah is the only prophet in the Bible, the Jewish Bible, who is successful. He's the only one that they listen to. Now there are, I, 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 there are a little caveats here. Nathan said, thou art the man to David and had some success there. Uh, Haggai and, and, and Zechariah, they, they preach to the people that they need to uh, rebuild the temple and they do. There are some caveats, but, but really to see people to get saved, for people to turn around and and, and to really do what they're supposed to do. Jonah is the only prophet of the Old Testament who really sees sustained success. Not Jeremiah, who gets to write two books of our Bible. He, he basically has no converts. Not Isaiah. Not, not any of the prophets. Elijah? Who calls down fire from heaven? It's not sustained. I mean, he, they, no sooner does he the fire fall and the rain start falling that Jezebel's out hunting him for his life, and and nobody and the people of Israel haven't turned around even though they've seen God move. Would you call Moses a success? I don't know that I would. The people are complaining and fussing all along the way. He doesn't. The people he took out of Egypt didn't even make it to the promised land. A whole new generation had to be raised up because they were so rebellious and so far from God, God wouldn't even reward them with the promised land that he promised them. Moses himself doesn't even get to go in. He gets to see it but not experience it. Jonah is more successful than Noah Noah? How many years did he spend building that ark? How, many, how, how much effort? How much preaching? How much did he love those people? Jonah? If you were going to just, just for a moment, just line up on a, 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 all of the prophets, all of the, the men and women of God... Line them up and put them in order of what, who you think would be successful. Jonah is almost towards the end of the line. Jonah is way down the bottom of the list. I mean, Jeremiah loved those people. He wept over those people. If ever there was a prophet that loved the people he was preaching to, Jeremiah was it. Or how about Hosea? I mean, Hosea, what he went through in his personal life so that it could be an example to the people of what they were doing. And all the suffering that Hosea experienced for the benefit of the people and it, no success. Ezekiel, he did some wacky things. He was far out there, all in the name of the Lord, trying to, trying to compete with the crazy of the world. The Lord allowed Ezekiel to, to do crazy in the name of the Lord, to try to get their attention. No success, or very, very little. 
Jonah's rebelling against God. Jonah's doing his own thing. And everywhere he goes, there's revival. There's revival in Nineveh. We know about that revival. We'll get there in a few weeks. Jonah has the revival in the whale where he, where he calls upon the Lord. And, and then he has the revival at the end where the Lord helps him to grow in some areas that he needs some personal growth in. But in this first chapter, a group of people we often forget about are these pagan sailors who the scriptures tell us that after they've thrown Jonah overboard and the sea calms down, that the, they sacrifice to the Lord and they make vows to God. And I'm going to suggest to you that because God included that in the word, that I believe they kept those vows. I don't know that. I, that. It's just my opinion. But it seems to me the fact that God included that these men are sacrificing to the Lord and making vows to the Lord, that these are people who have come to realize their false gods never showed this kind of interest in them. Their false gods never saved them. And if they even believed that their false gods were really gods, Still, they, would have, they had to say that our gods weren't more powerful than this God. Our gods couldn't calm the storm, but this God could. And suddenly you find a revival breaking out in a pagan ship in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And it doesn't make sense. I wonder if one of the reasons that Jonah was so successful is that he spent his ministry among people who hadn't kept, been kept telling the Lord no. Moses' people, they kept telling God no. The people that Elijah preached to had been already in the process of telling God no repeatedly. Jeremiah, same story. Most of the prophets go back to Israel or to Judah. And most of those people have been in the process of knowing what's right, knowing what God requires, and they're telling God no anyways. Yet Jonah finds himself among pagans who have not been telling God no. They don't even know who God is. on a ship, and pagans in Nineveh who don't respect or know anything about this God of Israel, they've got their own gods that they've been serving. And history tells us that their gods have been letting them down. If I understand correctly, before Jonah shows up, they've already had two plagues in the last five to ten years. They've, they've been fighting wars with the northern tribes of, and I don't remember the name, it was Utah or whatever it was, but this, they had their own enemies and they had gotten within a hundred miles of the city of Nineveh. The Assyrians are in danger of losing to these tribes that have banded together against Assyria. And now Nineveh feels the heat as these enemy, this enemy is coming in from the north. They know that, that they're not with, their gods are not helping them in battle. Their gods aren't helping them to stay healthy. And Nineveh, when Jonah shows up, they are, know that they're in trouble. I don't want to get ahead. But these are people who don't know the Lord. And I just wonder this morning if one of the reasons that we perhaps haven't seen the success that we'd like to see is that we spend 90% of our time or better of evangelizing people who are in the process of telling God no. They know all they need to know and they just keep telling God no. 
Am I saying that we should neglect them? We shouldn't pray for them? We shouldn't evangelize them? No, I'm not saying that. Thank God for those that have gone uh, out and come back. I believe it's the prophet Hosea who tells us that God is married to the backslider. So I'm not suggesting that, that it's some that are backslidden, that we, don't, that we don't love them and we don't try to reach them. But I wonder if the problem is, is we spend all of our time with people who know and are saying no instead of people who don't know and are in ignorance. And if they had a chance, they might just say yes. That's just food for thought. I guess I can't prove that. But it just seems that to be the pattern. Again, I'm not saying neglect one for the other. I'm saying let's do both, and let's do them both well. Because I think we have neglected. I believe we have neglected those who have never heard in our own communities. Jonah's on the ship. You know the story. You've known the story probably as long as you can remember. You probably don't remember the first time you heard the story of Jonah. Jonah's on this ship. He's. <laughs> I love the book of Jonah. There's, there's so much humor in this book. It's a, it, 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 Jonah, is, Jonah is, has got a good sense of humor. This is what he says. He says that Jonah went to hide himself from the face of the Lord. How do you do that? <laughs> Jonah is trying to get where the Lord can't see him. I remember some years ago I had a cousin. I don't remember how old she was, maybe three or four years old. And she would want to hide. Maybe she was playing hide and seek or whatever she was doing. She would want to hide. And do you know where she would go? Her dad would often wear a leather vest and she would stick her head in between his uh, body and the, that vest. And because she couldn't see you, you couldn't see her. And Jonah's playing the same game. I can't see God. I'm not in Israel. I don't see anything that reminds me of God. I've, I've eliminated all religious uh, pictures and, and, and all religious uh, uh, reminders uh, from me, and I'm, I'm just hiding from the face of God. God can't see me. But all it is is Jonah is, is sticking his head in the vest. I can't see God, so God can't see me. Jonah says, Jonah says, to the people that he made, that his God created the heaven and the earth. He really thinks God can be fooled while he's on this earth? Even if he were to go into the heavens, I, I, and I'm, I don't know if he means heaven or if he means space. I think he probably he means space, the sky. So where's Jonah going to go to get away from the face of God? He already knows that, but here he is. He's trying to flee. From the face of the Lord. Jonah goes down. He, he's tired. And he falls asleep. He's been, he's been running from the Lord. He's been stressed. And his body just can't take it anymore. He goes to sleep. Here they are. They're on the sea. They're on the sea. I wonder how many days passed. You know, I think it was a few days. I don't think they could see the shoreline anymore. I don't think it happened right away. I think God let Jonah think that he was getting away with things for a little while. And then the storm came. Now, my focus so far has been on Jonah, but I want to switch it here. I want us to focus on these sailors. These sailors... They don't know God. These sailors, 
They don't know that they're harboring a criminal. They don't know that. They're ignorant of any of that. All these men are trying to do is to take their wares from one port to another, make a profit, go home and see their wife and kids. They're probably gone three, six, nine months out of the year. They rarely get home. They work a hard life. They all have friends that have died in storms. And they're hoping, they're hoping to get this load off to Tarshish and they want to just make enough money where they can go home for a little while. But the storm comes. I told you that Jonah uses some humor and word pictures. The Hebrew word is is that the Lord hurled the storm out to the sea. (laughs) The Lord just takes the storm and he just throws it right in their path. One of my favorite things about the book of Jonah is how active God is in the whole book. A lot of times we don't get to see God doing stuff in the scriptures. Oftentimes God is kind of behind the scenes and God's man is front and center. But in the book of Jonah, it really feels like God is the center of the book. And God's out there hurling a storm. Throwing it out there in the path of this ship. Jonah's sleeping. The sailors aren't. They've been working and here the storm comes and they're terrified this is the worst storm they've ever seen. This is a hurricane storm on the Mediterranean Sea. Do you know sometimes God allows storms in our lives to help us to see our need for revival? Help us to see our need for Him. Sometimes the storms in our lives are, 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 uh, are sent to us because we haven't been doing what we need to be doing. And sometimes it's on purpose, like Jonah, and for the, sometimes it's in ignorance, like these sailors. But all of those men that are on this ship, all of them are sinners. All of them are. One, in, one in, uh, on purpose, one in willful disobedience, one in ignorance. But here's what I love. The, the, pro, the, the sailors go through an incredible revival process, and the first thing they do is they begin to pray. Each man began to call on his own God. Now you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They're praying to false gods. How is this a good thing? You know what? When we go through rough times, we often go to what our false gods are. Where we've placed our trust and our security in. Some will run to the bank, throw money at their problems. That's their security. Some will call mom and dad up. That's the first thing they do. You know, the very first place we go when we are hit with a storm often reveals to us where our security is. You know where most of us go? To ourselves. We're going to solve it. We're going to outthink it. We're going to outplan it. But doesn't the scripture tell us not to lean on our own understanding? The arm of flesh will fail you. But how often do we go to ourselves first? We've set ourselves up as little gods in the the temple of our hearts. And we're going to outsmart it and we're going to outthink it and we're going to trust in our wisdom and our strength and our abilities. Where's your security? These men, their first place they went was to their gods. And you know what? Their gods disappointed them. And that's a good thing. The prodigal son, he was living high off his father's money until it ran out. And the storm came and the money failed him. It was no longer there. And it's what it took to get him to his senses. I I truly believe that God likes to put us in a place where our false gods disappoint us. 
and they pray. And they seek and they pray and they seek and they pray. And their gods aren't doing anything. You know what amazes me is that in our world, that, that when the storms come, you find people praying. You remember 9-11? I saw in God we trust on a bar in the days after 9-11. It surprised me. It shouldn't have. I was too young to realize that in the midst of storms we pray. During the world wars, churches would have special prayer meetings about the situations that was going on. During wars, when so many of our boys were over there fighting, churches would have times of prayer for their community boys that were over there that the Lord would keep them safe. In the midst of storms, people pray. Doesn't matter if they're Christians, doesn't matter that they, they, that they don't know anything. They suddenly, when, when the pressure's on, when the storm hits, people who don't know how to pray suddenly become fluent in prayer language. And, and it, I mean, it can be personal storms or it can be national storms or even worldwide storms. But when a person is in trouble, you want to get parents to pray that get their little ones sick. Suddenly, mom and dad, who, who aren't going to go to church and don't have anything to do with God, suddenly they become prayer warriors. Have a family member that's facing death. People begin to pray, and they want prayer. They're desperate for it. And do you know what's sad? Is that oftentimes it's the church that's in the same place. The the time that we become the best prayers are when we are in the storm. I wonder if sometimes the Lord doesn't send us some storms just because He misses us and wants us to come and talk to Him for a little while. We might have more storms in our life just simply because God's trying to get our attention And if we would just be people of prayer, we could avoid some of those. Now, if you're going through a storm, I'm not suggesting to you it's because you've been lax in your prayer time. I'm just trying to help us understand that some of the storms in life that we face are a result of prayerlessness. And here comes the storm, and here comes the prayer warriors. And they begin to pray and seek and, and trying to get a hold of, of their God's. Any God that would listen to them, they would, any God that would help them in their situation, they were just interested in help. And here's the second thing they do. This one's going to get close. They begin to toss the things that don't matter. They thought they mattered. This is their livelihood, this is their paycheck. They don't get paid an hourly rate. When you sign up on, for, to, to, for cargo ship, you get a percentage of the profits. You get your cut. And as they're tossing that cargo overboard, they're throwing away their own money. They're throwing away the reason they're on this ship in the first place. But... It isn't important right now because they need to survive this storm and the, and the ship's going to break up and, and, and they need to get do what's important and what's important is keeping their ship together. I imagine some, as they're going and they're, they're, they, they, they've got some, perhaps they've got some gold. And maybe someone is saying, oh, I don't want to let this gold go. I don't want to dump this gold overboard. Oh, this is, this is a huge part of my, my uh, livelihood. And someone barks, throw it over, throw it over. It's not going to do us any good dead. And so they throw it over. Maybe it's fine linens. I don't know what they were carrying. I would suggest to you this morning that most of the stuff that they tossed wasn't necessarily sinful things. 
Maybe they had opium. Maybe they had some alcohol. I don't know if, what they were carrying, but I believe that most of the things they tossed were things that were okay, that God didn't have a problem with those particular things. But here's the problem, Christians, as, as we uh, enter into a, a, our uh, revival time, as we begin to be aware of our own need of revival, I wonder what things we've taken on in the ship of our life that God says, is it needful? In fact, it's going to uh, cause us to, to our ship to break up. And we're not going to be able to be used of God the way that he'd have us to be used. We're not going to be in the place spiritually where we can be a blessing and a help to others because we've taken these things on. And what's scary is, is, is as soon as I start mentioning things, we start, we start getting nervous. If I even begin to start mentioning things that are good and okay necessarily, suddenly... Suddenly we get frustrated and we get upset. And I understand that there have been abuses of the past. But here's the thing. We've gotten to the place that we don't want anyone touching our special things. We don't want a preacher. We don't want a prophet. We don't want someone telling us that that's got to be tossed overboard. And so here's what we've done. We've come to rely completely on the Holy Spirit to put his finger on it. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit's already done so. And you won't throw it over. And what are we to do? And what's God to do? Some standards that you've let up on. Some shows that you're watching on Netflix that you shouldn't be watching and you know that, they're, that you shouldn't be watching them. Oh, they're not sinful. They're not wicked. How's your prayer life? Don't have time for prayer, Pastor. Don't have time for Bible reading. Got time for Netflix, though. How much time do we have spend on social media? How much time do we spend on YouTube? And we get into a YouTube spiral, young people. Maybe even some of our older people. You know what I'm talking about. From video to video to video to video, and suddenly you find you've spent two, three hours just watching little clips. I didn't watch anything sinful. Didn't say you did. Didn't say you did. But we've got things on our ship that are keeping us from doing what we need to be doing spiritually. You say, Pastor, does God not want us to have fun? I believe God wants his people to enjoy life. He wants us to have life and more, it more abundantly. I believe that God wants us to enjoy life. But here's the thing. A lot of things that we think that are bringing us joy are actually bringing us down. And counselors and psychologists are finding that social media is causing depression. We're finding video games are causing depression. And we're finding out that YouTube spirals cause depression. And a lot of the things that we think are entertainment, the things that we think we're having a good time, are isolating us from other people. And it's causing us not to have life more abundant, not for us to be having a good time, but it's making us more alone and more separated from God and God's people. But it's not sin. It's not sin. So I can't preach on it. I can't touch on it. Because if I touch on it, I'm, pre I'm preaching things that are not sin. And the Holy Spirit puts his finger on it, and you say, well, it's okay, there's not sin. Let me tell you something, if you want to make it to heaven, you better toss whatever is anything that is causing you to trip up spiritually. Anything, anything that causes us to lessen our love for the Lord is sin to you. I don't care if it's Christian radio. I don't care how spiritual it may look or appear. If it is causing you to love the Lord less, it is sin. Someone else might can do it. And you might not be able to point to scripture and verse. But if you love the Lord less after you do it, it's sin. If it weaves a veil... Between you and the Lord, 
And no matter how thin, I don't care if it's a spider web thin. And you let that stay between you and the Lord. It's sin. Oh, that we would get to the place of prayer, that old hymn, nothing between my soul and the Savior. But we, put, we allow these spider webs of things that are not seen to get between us and the Lord, and we think we can tear down that spider web any time. We just don't want to. Sound like cigarette smokers. I'd quit smoking any time. I just don't want to. We could mock them for that addiction and that statement, knowing full well they're addicted. But how many things are we holding on to? How many spider webs between us and the Lord until we suddenly realize it's got to be torn down, it's got to be thrown overboard? Here's the thing I don't know what it is for you. And if I did know, I probably wouldn't preach it. I'd probably talk to you one-on-one. But here's the thing. Are you wanting to make it to heaven? Are you really wanting to make it? And are you wanting to take people with you? Or is that thing that important that you've got to hold on to it? Those, those sh- sailors, they were throwing that stuff overboard. And it was important to them. It was their livelihood. It was their paycheck. It was the whole reason they were out on this ship in the first place. But they realized that their life, their soul, was much more important than that stuff. What's more important than your soul and your life? You know what they do next? It's not working. The ship's in danger. They're going to die and they know it. And they, finally they turn to the Christian to help for help. You know, often people don't turn to God because they don't really know who God is. They don't know how to pray. You know what they do? They turn to Christians for help. And do you know what the Christian's doing? He's asleep. And I'm using the word Christian as someone who knows the truth. I know Jonah's backslidden. I know he's, he's running away from God. But he's supposed to know. He is the prophet of, he- of the God of heaven and earth. He's supposed to know. They wake him up and he realizes he hasn't found a place yet where God can't see him. But he's sleeping. And I wonder, church, are we asleep at the wheel? Are we asleep down in, the, down in the depths of the ship and people turn to us and we don't have answers? We don't know why we do what we do. Some preacher preached it sometime, I guess. This is the way we were raised. And so we were asleep. And they're turning to us for help. And do you know where we focus on when they turn to us for help? We focus on their sin. When we're supposed to focus on a great God. Who loves them no matter what. Jonah's asleep and he's indifferent. He doesn't care. I read a story about a man who was on the dock he had went away from his friends. His friends were farther away. He was on the dock and he tripped and he fell into the water. And he was going down. He's calling and crying out for help. His friends were too far away. They didn't hear. But there was a man that was on the dock who was a very good swimmer. And as he heard this man calling, he looked and he turned to him. He saw him and he saw the man go down and fight his way up. He's panicking. And the man on the dock just watched as the man in the water drowned. The family was upset about it. The family was 
thought this was a terrible thing, and they took this man to, to court. And the judge said, it's not illegal to not care. And it isn't. But you know what? It's immoral. Do you know the rich man and Lazarus, that story that Jesus tells? Do you know what Jesus calls out as the principal sin in his life? That he doesn't care about Lazarus. That's the principal sin that Jesus calls out in his life. Not his wealth, not how he got his wealth, not the way he's lived. In fact, in that story, as Jesus is telling it, twice it's brought up how La the rich man did not care about Lazarus' situation. Do you know what's interesting? In hell, that rich man suddenly cared about his brothers. Suddenly, the person who didn't care did care. When we step across that golden threshold, we step through the pearly gates, you know what I think is going to happen? When our faith becomes sight and we really see how wonderful heaven is, I think we're going to really care. I think we're really, really going to care. They turn to somebody for help. Maybe you need to turn to someone for help. Maybe you need an accountability partner. Maybe you've got an, a place that you keep falling in. Maybe you need a Christian to come alongside you and help you. Maybe it's that you need someone to pray with you. That you feel weak in the storm and the battles that you're facing. Maybe we just need somebody to help us to make it home. Those sailors did. They were never going to make it home without the help of Jonah. Jonah had to tell them what to do. And when they did it, they saw that God was powerful and real in their lives. I believe it was the 1929 Rose Bowl. University of California, Berkeley, was playing Georgia Tech. This is a long time ago, and there wasn't a lot of scoring in those days, but Georgia Tech had fumbled the football. Actually, I'm sorry. University of California fumbled the football, and their center, Roy Regal, picked up the football. Georgia Tech, he says, hit him, got him spun around, and he started running the wrong way towards the wrong end zone. His own man had to chase him down and tackle him at, I believe, the one or the two-yard line. Now it's first down from their own one or, or two. And in those days, they didn't have a lot of offense. And so the, the coach ordered on first down for them to punt. The punt was blocked. A safety was scored. Now it's halftime. And I said the locker room was deadly silent except for the sound of Roy weeping in a corner. The coach walked in. Everybody's waiting to hear what he's going to say. And he says this. The team that started the first half will start the second half. Roy looked up. He said, Coach, I can't do it. I've ruined myself. I've ruined you. I've ruined our team. I've, ru I've ruined the game. And the coach said to him, There's another half to play. Get out there and play. And according to the reports that I've read, he played the best half of football of his career. 
You know, while Roy was running the wrong way, the Georgia Tech coach said this. He's running the wrong way. Let's see how far he'll go. And you may feel like this morning that you're running the wrong way. And Satan may be saying, he's running the wrong way. He's going in the wrong direction. Let's see how long he'll go. But the Lord wants to turn you around. He said, there's a second half to play. I believe God wants to send us revival. I really do. Roy would end up being inducted into, I believe, two Hall of Fames as a great football player. He'd end up having his own chemical company. He'd be successful in life because he got turned around and got going in the right direction. He didn't allow the time when he was going in the wrong way to define his life. And it's up to us to decide, are we going to go the right way or are we going to see how far we can go, go in the wrong way? Invite us to stand this morning. Father, what is in our ships that need thrown over? As we're get headed into this revival season, this time, Lord, only you know why that you'd sent, sent us uh, this message, this, this series on revival. I, I've never done that before. I have to believe that there's some things that you're wanting to do in our lives. Some work that you're wanting to do. And Lord, I'm asking that you'd help us all not to just see what we need to throw over, but to have the courage to do it. And Lord, if we don't have the courage to do it, help us to ask another Christian to help us. We've got to make it. We've got to make it. Help us, Lord. Help us, each one. Each one that's here, each one that's listening on the internet, help us to make it. We've got to make it. We've got to make it. Help us to be what you'd have us to be. Help us to have the revival that we need to have. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. You're dismissed.